Hello, welcome to the New Books Network Journalism Podcast, As the Nation magazine turns 150. I'm Laura Landon. Today, we look at how the nation covered the struggles against racial segregation in schools and on buses. We'll also hear about the magazine's moving tribute to Malcolm X, and what poet Langston Hughes had to say about the Negro artist and the racial mountain. There's a little song that we sing in our movement down in the South. I don't know if you've heard it. It has become the theme song. We shall overcome. We shall overcome. Deep in my heart, I do believe we shall overcome. Though I join hands so often with students and others behind jail bars singing, we shall overcome. We shall overcome. Lord, one day. The white man pays Reverend Martin Luther King, subsidizes Reverend Martin Luther King, so that Reverend Martin Luther King can continue to teach the Negroes to be defenseless. That's what you mean by nonviolent. Be defenseless. Be defenseless in the face of one of the most cruel uh, beasts that has ever taken the people into captivity. We shall all have peace. Lord, Lord, one day. What happens to a dream deferred? Does it dry up like a raisin in the sun? Or fester like a sore and then run? Does it stink like rotten meat? Or crust and sugar over like a syrupy sweet? Maybe it just sags like a heavy load? Or does it explode? The voices of Mahalia Jackson, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, and Langston Hughes. We shall overcome. To celebrate its 150th anniversary, The Nation magazine is publishing a daily blog called The Almanac, compiled by archivist Richard Kreitner. This week, May 17th to May 23rd, Richard has chosen several pieces that show how The Nation covered the explosive issues of race in America. We reached Richard Kreitner at the Nation offices in New York City. The interviewer is Bruce Wark. Richard, uh, we start with May 17, 1954, really historic day in the United States. What happened then? That was the day that the Supreme Court ruled that segregation in public accommodations, such as schools, was unconstitutional in Brown v. Board of Education. And why was that so significant? Well, it overturned Plessy v. Ferguson, which was a Supreme Court case from 1893 or 1897, I want to say. Um, I, I think it was 1896. Oh, 1896. Oops. <laughs> um, saying that um, segregation was, was constitutional if the, if the accommodations were separate but equal. And in fact, uh, separate but equal sounds fair enough if, if, you, if the public schools are equal quality. Uh, why did Brown v. Board of Education find that uh, that separate but equal was not appropriate? It found that the accommodations were not equal at all. I, I would also argue that, that separate but equal, even if it were the case, would not be, would not be just. But, um, but, but I believe that the court ruled it was unconstitutional because the accommodations were anything but equal. 
And it, it was a unanimous decision as well. What was the significance of that? It signaled that there was no chance that it was going to get overturned anytime soon and that, um, that the court really meant business. I suppose if uh, there had been a dissent or two, then those opposed to integration could have used the dissent to quote from it and say, well, some justices disagreed. But in this case, uh, I guess uh, Earl Warren had been newly appointed chief justice and uh, he swung the court to unanimity. Exactly. And that, that the nation itself um, and the, the editor, Carrie McWilliams, thought that was an especially important point. Now, Kerry McWilliams wrote an editorial about this, a fairly long one, um, uh, The Climax of an Era. Uh, could you read an excerpt from it, Richard? Absolutely. The decision was especially welcome at this time, since it enabled us and our friends abroad for the first time in some years to be equally and simultaneously enthusiastic about an important announcement from Washington. The decision was a fine antidote to the blight of McCarthyism and kindred fevers. The reception which has been accorded the court's decision should be taken as a guide to policy, for it demonstrates once again the measure of unity and confidence and pride that can be aroused whenever unqualified expression is given to the individual and social values to be found in the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. I suppose we could say, it's not a stretch to say this, that um, Brown v. Board of Education was really a major turning point in civil rights in the U.S. Absolutely. And it's interesting, I, I, I especially like this editorial because it reminds us of what else was going on at the time, which is McCarthyism. We, we, we tend to remember it as this, this great triumph, um, forgetting that it came in a period of, of great darkness for, for America and for, for liberalism. Yes, uh, I see too that uh, Brown v. Board of Education was important internationally as well. The editorial refers to that. And um, the U.S. during the Cold War was kind of taking a beating internationally uh, because of its segregation, and uh, especially in African nations. And uh, this unanimous Supreme Court decision uh, striking down the uh, uh, segregation in public schools uh, was important uh, to the U.S.'s international image in the Cold War. That's right, but it, it, it's often forgotten that it took a second Supreme Court decision, which is often called Brown II, to, um, to, for the court to really enforce things. And it took at least another 10 years, and, and some would say the effort continues to, to really um, introduce integration into American society. So it, it, it was certainly a propaganda coup internationally, but it has taken a long time for um, the U.S. to live up to what the court said was just and constitutional. You're listening to a New Books Network journalism podcast. Richard Kreitner, special assistant to the publisher of The Nation, talks about The Almanac, his daily blog to mark the magazine's 150 years of continuous publishing. His entry for May 19th goes back to 1965, the year when Malcolm X was assassinated. Just because you're in this country doesn't make you an American. And no, you got to go farther than that before you can become an American. You've got to enjoy the fruits of Americanism. And you haven't enjoyed those fruits. You've enjoyed the thorns. You've enjoyed the thistles. But you have not enjoyed the fruits. No, sir. So I point these things out, brothers and sisters, so that you and I will know the importance in 1965 of being in complete unity with each other, harmony with each other, and not letting the man maneuver us uh, into fighting one another. 
I say that again that I'm not a racist. I don't believe in any form of segregation or anything like that. I'm for the brotherhood of everybody, but I don't believe in enforcing uh, brotherhood upon people who don't want it. As long as we practice brotherhood among ourselves and then others who want to practice brotherhood with us, we practice it with them also, we're, we're for that. But I don't think that we should run around trying to love somebody who doesn't love us. Thank you. That's the voice of Malcolm X speaking in 1965, just one week before his assassination in February 1965. And that's a famous speech called, You Can't Hate the Roots of a Tree and Not Hate the Tree. So, Richard Kreitner, I see that you've selected May 19, 1925, as the day that Malcolm X was born. And I see you've used that as your peg to refer to a book review of uh, Malcolm X's uh, autobiography that was uh, published after his death. Um, who wrote that review, and uh, what did it say? It was by a novelist and essayist named Truman Nelson, who wrote a lot um over his career he's fairly forgotten today but a lot over his career about john brown and interestingly enough he was cited in a very famous james baldwin essay from uh the following year from 1966 about um events in harlem and and police brutality an essay that has um really come to life in the last year with what's going on in american cities well, uh, the book review was headlined Delinquent's Progress, and I wonder if you could uh, read an excerpt for, for us. This is the story of a man struck down on his way to becoming a revolutionary and a liberator of his people. It is the real American tragedy, a fall from great heights of promise, not from inner weakness or self-betrayal, but because assassins stood up in plain sight like a firing squad and put 13 shotgun slugs into his chest and bullets in his legs and thighs as he lay dying. Viewed in its complete historical context, this is indeed a great book. Its dead-level honesty, its passion, its exalted purpose, even its manifold unsolved ambiguities will make it stand as a monument to the most painful of truths, that this country this people, this Western world, has practiced unspeakable cruelty against a race, an individual, who might have made its fraudulent humanism a reality. There is in the review, I mean, I, I was really impressed by Truman Nelson's writing. It's, it's some great writing. He gives this, uh, this visual portrait of Malcolm X uh, in the ghettos of Boston and New York. He says, quote, with conked red hair, a sky blue zoot suit, and orange knob-toed shoes, also grotesque on his six-foot-five gangling frame that he would stop traffic crossing the street. <laughs> Unforgettable picture of Malcolm X. Yeah, he, he was, he was a, roi- a white writer, James, uh, Truman Nelson. Uh, Baldwin writes in his essay from 1966 that when he read his book um, called the, uh, the Torture of Mothers about, about the police brutality in Harlem, that he assumed that Nelson was, was black, but he was surprised to find out that he's, he was white. A very strongly sympathetic uh, view of Malcolm X, who, who often has been uh, portrayed as someone who advocated violence and who criticized Martin Luther King and, and a much inferior figure to King himself, and yet here uh, the nation and Truman Nelson very strongly backing Malcolm X as a prophet and as a great leader. Absolutely, and not not in opposition to, to Martin Luther King, because during these years of, of the 60s, um, King was writing annual civil rights uh, audits of, of, of the successes and defeats of the previous year for the nation for, for five or six years running. So um, 
the nation wasn't supporting Malcolm X uh, in opposition to King, but um, thought he was a, a serious figure in his own right. And and the autobiography was actually one of the first books I ever read, and it's it's been enormously influential, and, and I've found it very powerful. It seems as though, unless I'm misreading this uh, book review, that Truman Nelson sees uh, Malcolm X as quite a complex but also tragic figure. Would you say that? I would definitely say that, and I think that comes across in the autobiography. Um, towards the end of his life, he was he was sort of veering away from from a much more, how to put it, intense, um, and and often very anti-white, um, anti-white collaborationist um, mentality and philosophy toward towards as as Nelson puts it, a, a great humanism, and um, he was struck down as as the autobiography shows. Uh, just as he was beginning to to launch that campaign, which is similar to King, who was who was assassinated as soon as he um, started to advocate for for economic justice and not just racial justice. Well, there are quite a few racial themes in the week of uh, this week that we're discussing in May. And uh, on May twenty first, you've selected another article from the Nation that uh, um, really deals with another story about integration. What was that one? Well, on May 21st, 1961, the um, first group of Freedom Riders who, who ventured into the South in order to encourage uh, integration on interstate buses, um, they were attacked in Montgomery, Alabama, um, as Reverend King was, was delivering a speech to them, and the federal government had to institute martial law and send in the National Guard in order to uh, sort of uh, save the the freedom riders and and put down the mob. I have a trailer here from a PBS uh, special, uh, and let's just give a listen to that. It's a fairly short trailer that advertises the program on the freedom riders. Boarding that Greyhound bus to travel through the heart of the deep south, I felt good. I felt happy. I felt liberated. I was like a soldier in a nonviolent army. I was ready. I'm on my way. I'm sorry, our management does not allow us to serve niggers in here. The Freedom Rides of 1961 were a simple but daring plan to put blacks and whites on commercial buses. They would deliberately violate the segregation laws. These people are going from town to town and getting off the bus, Negro men and white women, to provoke acts of violence. The idea of going into Mississippi and going into Alabama and challenging segregation so frontally is something that alarmed not only those who oppose civil rights, but those within the civil rights community. I don't question their legal That was part of a trailer from PBS advertising their American Experience show called Freedom Riders, which was rebroadcast in June 2014. Richard, how did the nation handle the Freedom Riders story? Sure. Well, the following year, we published an essay by one of the Freedom Riders, a guy named Robert Martinson, uh, talking about his experience in prison and, and what that said to him. And uh, could you read an excerpt from sure. that? Uh, first of all, who was Martinson? Martinson was a student when he was a Freedom Rider. He later became a sociologist um, who wrote a fairly famous paper um, uh, about the concept that nothing works in terms of rehabilitating convicted criminals and he uh, sadly committed suicide in 1980. So um, he's a pretty good writer, uh, this piece, uh, Freedom Riders. Uh, could you read an excerpt for us? Sure, he's writing from Mississippi State Penitentiary. 
And yet even here, the spirit of the movement prevailed. In these almost hopeless conditions, the democratic forms continued. Solidarity was somehow recaptured through song, prayer, and discussion. Even our nemesis, Deputy Sheriff Thiessen, seemed a little surprised, even curious. He asked a young Negro why he was smiling and received no answer. He repeated the question in his deadly way. Boy, what you got to smile about? You in jail, you know. Sheriff, he answered. You just wouldn't understand. I'm smiling because I'm free. And I was witness to the fact that, indeed, a new kind of freedom, tough, critical, unsentimental, knowing, is being forged in the jails and prisons of the South. Those who emerge from these jails will never be the same again. They will go on to fight other battles and train other riders. Mississippi will learn that it has aided the process it set out to hinder. It has educated the ignorant and trained the native. And again, uh, you, what you've selected for this week of May are really turning points, highlights in the struggle for uh, civil rights in the U.S., uh, and certainly the Freedom Riders, Brown v. Board of Education, uh, and the work of Malcolm X, all, I mean, they're great choices for this week. Absolutely, and I couldn't have known how, um, well, maybe I could have, but uh, how relevant they would be uh, in these days. Your final story, and it also is a, a story about uh, racism, and but also about art. It's from May 22nd, and uh, what, what did you select for that date? Uh, that was the day in 1967 that Langston Hughes, the great poet and, um, and black uh, artist and writer, uh, died. Richard, I have a clip of Langston Hughes reading his poem, The Negro Speaks of Rivers, and he also explains in this clip how he came to write that poem. This is The Negro Speaks of Rivers, one of my earliest poems written in 1920, just after I came out of high school. The way this poem came to be written was that I was going to Mexico to visit my father, who lived in Mexico City, and on the train going across the Mississippi River, just outside St. Louis, I looked out the window and I saw this great muddy river flowing down toward the heart of the south, and I began to think about what this river meant to the Negro people, how, in a sense, our history was linked to this river, how in slavery time, my grandmother told me that to be sold down the Mississippi was one of the worst things that could happen to a Negro slave. And then uh, I remembered that I'd read about Abraham Lincoln going down the Mississippi as a young man. and He went on a raft to New Orleans and he saw human beings bought and sold in the slave market there. And he was so horrified by this that he never forgot it. And many years later, of course, we know that it was Lincoln who signed the Emancipation proclamation. And so, uh, as the train went on into the gathering dusk, because it had been about sunset when we crossed the river, I took my father's letter out of my pocket and began to write down on the back of his letter this poem, The Negro Speaks of Rivers. I've known rivers. I've known rivers ancient as the world and older than the flow of human blood in human veins. My soul has grown deep like the rivers. I bathed in the Euphrates when dawns were young. I built my hut near the Congo and it lulled me to sleep. I looked upon the Nile and raised the pyramids above it. I heard the singing of the Mississippi when Abe Lincoln went down to New Orleans and I've seen its muddy bosom turn all golden in the sunset. <laughs> 
I've known rivers, ancient, dusky rivers. My soul has grown deep like the rivers. The voice of Langston Hughes reading his poem, The Negro Speaks of Rivers. And um, Richard Kreitner, Nation Archivist, um, what did you select from Langston Hughes from the pages of The Nation? This is one of my favorite pieces that the magazine has has ever published, uh, bar none. It's a piece from 1926 when Hughes, I'm not even sure how old he was, he was either 22 or 23, extremely young and, and not very well known um, as, as of then. Uh, it's a piece he wrote called The Negro Artist and the Racial Mountain, and it was specifically solicited by the nation uh, staff editor Frida Kirschway um, in response to an earlier piece that the magazine had published the week earlier by the black journalist George Schuyler, who was, who, it's called The Negro Art Hokum saying um, that there's no such thing as a specifically black art, that black art is human art, and um, it, was, it was sort of against the Harlem Renaissance. Langston Hughes, a major figure of the Harlem Renaissance, writes this response. Let the blare of Negro jazz bands and the bellowing voice of Bessie Smith singing blues penetrate the closed ears of the colored near-intellectuals until they listen and perhaps understand. Let Paul Robeson singing Waterboy and Rudolph Fisher writing about the streets of Harlem and Aaron Douglas drawing strange black fantasies cause the smug Negro middle class to turn from their white, respectable, ordinary books and papers to catch a glimmer of their own beauty. We younger Negro artists who create now intend to express our individual dark-skinned selves without fear or shame. If white people are pleased, we are glad. If they are not, it doesn't matter. We know we are beautiful and ugly too. The tom-tom cries and the tom-tom laughs. If colored people are pleased, we are glad. If they are not, their displeasure doesn't matter either. We build our temples for tomorrow, strong as we know how, and we stand on top of the mountain, free within ourselves. Finally, Richard, I should ask you, I mean, you you spent a long time going through the archives to find pieces like this. Uh, How tough a job was that, winnowing out some pieces and, and not being able to use some? It was a huge job, and it was only um, that I started to feel better when I realized how arbitrary it was, because, you know, this this, uh, Langston Hughes piece, I don't think any of the other pieces we discussed today, but the Langston Hughes piece appears in our 150th anniversary issue, uh, available wherever books are sold, Um, and, and at some point I realized that we could choose articles to to go on the issue we could we could have made five different anniversary issues with none of the same content in there the archives are just just that rich so um it was liberating at some point to recognize the the um the impossibility of the task well richard kreitner thank you so much for joining me for this week great thank you talk to you next week You've been listening to a New Books Network journalism podcast. The Nation magazine turns 150. Join us again next week as The Nation's archivist, Richard Kreitner, talks about how the magazine covered notable events in the last week of May. You can read Richard's blog, The Almanac, on the magazine's website at thenation.com.